Hi, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madhvi, what's the topic this week? I've been thinking about the case of Alice Siebold, who last week apologized to a black man called Anthony J. Broadwater, who was recently exonerated by a judge for a crime he didn't commit, which was the crime of rape that she had accused him of many years ago. As a result of the conviction, Anthony Broadwater, who is now 61, spent 16 years in prison before being released in 1998, and then he was forced to register as a sex offender, which, as you know, kind of makes you an outcast in society, you can't find jobs, he did marry, he got by on an odd jobs. He always maintained his innocence, and because he always maintained his innocence, he was denied parole five times, and he also tried to fight his case many different times with different lawyers and appeal it unsuccessfully. And what happened was, when Alice Siebold was at Syracuse University, she was 18, she was walking home one night and she was raped, and at that time the police couldn't really identify any suspects. But then, about five months later, I believe, she was walking down the street and a black man said hey to her, hey, haven't I seen you around somewhere, or something like that. And she felt that that was the man who must have raped her. Obviously, five months on from such a traumatizing and violent rape, you probably are prone to see your attacker and be super traumatized and anxious everywhere you go. And she called the police and said, I think I've seen the man. And then they came up with Anthony Broadwater was in the area and they arrested him. She failed to identify him in the lineup and then was told by the all the people who were involved, I guess the attorneys, the police, that I think the comment was they had really pulled one on you in the lineup. And then in court, she actually did identify him and pointed at him as her assailant. Although I do have to say that I feel like that is not evidence because they basically have him sitting there in the stand and they ask her, is your assailant here today? And she just points at him. That's what happens. So, yes, but this is why it's very interesting because this man was convicted and his life, his entire life just absolutely ruined because of so scant evidence. And that was one evidence was just her pointing at him in in court, which is ridiculous. And the other thing, it was like a microscopic, I don't know, piece of hair was found somewhere, which actually since then has been sort of termed as like inefficient kind of basis of any proof or evidence ever since. So actually he was convicted on basically nothing, like you said. And I just, it's a very interesting case because when he was released in all grace, he had an amazing statement. He said, I just hope and pray that maybe Miss Seabold will come forward and say, hey, I made a grave mistake and give me an apology. I sympathize with her, but she was wrong. And then eight days later, on Tuesday, she did make an apology. Which he accepted, I believe. Which he really accepted. And it's such a, I mean, it's such a terrible case, 
but it really highlights a lot of problems with racism and the system here. And also, yeah, <laughs> it just, it brings up a lot of questions about was she the victim? Was he the victim? Obviously, they were both victims of a system that is inherently racist, a racist system. But that she, as a white woman, did not realize or had the privilege not to realize or even consider her racism and her part in the system is really problematic for me. And it must be said that afterwards, she wrote a book called Lucky based on, you know, this, this rape based on the fact that a policeman said that somebody else had been raped and that she was lucky that she got out alive. And this book was a New York Times bestseller. She made a lot of money from this book, which is fine. It's a memoir, but a memoir has to be fact-based and part of the memoir deals with this case and Anthony Broadwater and stuff. And then what's also really interesting is they were going to make it into a film and one of the executive producers, his name is Timothy Muciante, he started seeing discrepancies in the story when he read it and then he had many questions and he actually, even after he was kind of, he pulled from the film or was terminated from the film because he had his doubts and didn't provide the funding he was supposed to provide, he hired a private investigator to look into the case and they found that it was basically based on nothing. And because of this executive producer, the case went back to court and then he was exonerated. And mm. until very recently, she was about to make also a lot of money based off the film. And this is also super interesting. There's a lot of layers here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you have a woman who's gone through terrible trauma. On the other hand, you have the racism issue. And then you also have the, the weaponization of whiteness in this scenario. Because when I look at it in the sense of like, something really horrible happened to Alice. And like you said, I can understand walking down the street and seeing your attacker everywhere. But I guess I'm also kind of unclear about how well she saw his face, because like if she if she couldn't identify her attacker in a lineup, how well did she see his face? Like you're so traumatized from this experience, I can understand how she would, walking down the street, assume that a man who approached her or said something to her that within the context of her own experience she perceived as creepy, I assume, would set her off. But at the same time, I don't know, it, it comes back to this like question of will this backfire and will we be less inclined to believe victims now? Because this is sort of the one argument that people always use when it comes to rape cases, right? That women make it up or that they're lying about things. But then there's also been a history of white women calling police on black men, like Amy Cooper, who was like a white dog owner called the police on a black man who was bird watching in Central Park in New York last year. It's ridiculous. And the race aspect of it is obviously one of the most crucial, because as we see with, for example, the Brock Turner case, which is the swimmer who assaulted the young girl in the alleyway, he got off scot-free and like he was caught in the act. And so there's this added layer to the entire thing of the order that white supremacy cares about people, right, is as though it's white men first, then white women, which is like terrible in any way you look at it, the fact that like they prioritize whiteness over everything. But if she had accused a white man of raping her, would they have arrested him based just simply on her pointing at him in the street? No, they would not have. That's like Brock Turner got away with absolutely no punishment. 
And like, there was solid evidence. And I feel like this narrative of black men raping white women is a totally racist narrative that exists in the US. And for a white woman not to know that, I mean, she must have known it. Like, did she know it or did she not know it? This is a problem actually I have because in her statement she said, which I think it's not the best apology. No, I don't think it's an apology at all. In this LA Times article, they obviously point out that the apology that she released has been read by lawyers so that she's in no way liable because obviously there's always concerns of her being countersued and whatnot. So it was like a piece of fluff essentially written to make sure she isn't liable for anything. So she says in her statement that today's discussion of systematic flaws in the justice system was not a debate or a conversation or even a whisper in 1981. Okay, fair, she was young, 1981, and maybe she was not involved in these conversations, although, okay, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt because I can see your face is like, no, bitch, no. <laughs> but okay, it has become, actually ever since, a massive discussion. So she is a white woman that she was unwilling to examine that, is very interesting. And did she not hear of the multiple times that he contested the sentence and that he maintained his innocence? Was she just not aware of this? Did she, was she not aware that the evidence upon which she was convicted, which was this like microscopic summit hair rubbish, was actually afterwards just right now it just doesn't, it wouldn't stand as a piece of evidence in court? Was she not aware of this overturning? Like, did she just turn away? Which is very interesting because she's a memoirist. And I think part of the job of a memoirist is really like looking back and questioning the past and going into it deeper and deeper. Not that she has to and not that anyone has to, but as a memoirist, actually you have a responsibility to to explore the nature of memory. And as everyone knows, memory is super, super unreliable, which is why we cannot just convict someone based on some sort of vague memory or even identification after a traumatic event. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And I will say that if she was a child, like if she was younger, then I feel like I would be more inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt that she was not aware of these race relations. And so I do think that like, yeah, if you grow up in a bubble and you're not exposed to these sort of things, maybe fair enough. She was at university, though. She wasn't a 12-year-old child where, like, you were still inclined to believe your parents, right? She was 18. She was at school. I get it. 18-year-olds are still children. You know no, nothing about the world. No, but also the lack... Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Also, the lack of responsibility she takes for her own actions, because I think that's what kind of bugs me the most about it, is in this, like, LA Times article... Lorraine Barry is talking about how this is the time of Ronald Reagan where, you know, this idea of a welfare queen comes up. And she's talking about how, like, at the time, one of the most covered stories was this incident in Neshpa County where three civil rights workers were murdered by white supremacists. Ronald Reagan is running his campaign. He has all these super racist campaigns that he's running his entire thing on. So topics of racial injustice and racially motivated murders, that's a topic of conversation in the United States at that time. And again, she's not a 12-year-old child at home who has to listen to what her parents say. She's at university where I would hope people would be having discussions and be open to free thinking and challenging ideas. I do admit that it's the 80s, it's a different time, 
But it's the 80s. It's not 1945. Do you know what I mean? There's like, you have certain forms of mass media. You have, you know, work by amazing critical thinkers being done. It's not like this topic hasn't been around for a while. So if at this point you're choosing to stay ignorant, like it's a choice. I was actually going to say the lack of willingness to even see it is kind of like a will, willful blindness. Yeah. And I think that is then collusion in racism. And I think that's what she's guilty of. However, I'm kind of willing to be like she was 18, whatever. I think, you know, these things take, take a while and critical thinking and she was traumatized, all of that. However, what I really don't understand is as a memoirist, as a responsible adult trying to write way afterwards about this experience and go into it again and look at the case again. Like, the executive producer looked at it and was like, something doesn't hold up between the first part of this memoir and the second part of this memoir, and he just wasn't buying it. And then they were making a film out of it. So the executive producer, Timothy Mucciante, wrote an op-ed in the LA Times, and he had a really nice phrasing. This film was cancelled, by the way. He wrote that the Lucky production was another way this kind of racism is monetized. And he was talking a bit in this op-ed about the conversations happening while this is being produced. Because, of course, while you're making a new thing, you have to deal with these questions all over again within the context of today as well. And what he said was, when he received the film's shooting script in March, it was suggested that the race of the assailant be changed from a black man to a white man. Because... He was told a black actor consulted on the role said that he was afraid of having a black man as the rapist of a white woman in a film because it could contribute to the actual violence of white people against black men in the country, perhaps even leading to a black man being killed. And that's a really fair point. That is fully like, oh, what are the racial politics at play here? And how is this racist and dangerous? It kind of reminded me of Birth of a Nation, where like a white woman is trying to escape a black man who wants to rape her and stuff. And white people were so riled up in the cinema at this film. Like one man stood up in the cinema and shot at the screen. So obviously these questions were coming up in production and stuff. And what was her role there? She was perfectly happy to still go along with all this until the exoneration. So it's kind of disappointing And also the other layer, of course, is the capitalization of racism. And as an author, she might not be in charge of the whole system of police or whatever. And I think all those people should totally be also pulled up, not just her, because that is also like, oh, white woman gets the blame. You know, there are all the white men of the system who should also be totally blamed and sued and everything. However, I feel like the appropriate thing to do would be to really offer all the proceeds that she's got and she's made, like it launched her career as a a writer and her testimony in some way ruined the entire life of a black man and at this point, I would say monetary compensation is due from her to him to make amends. Yeah, it's the weaponization of whiteness in this context cannot be... Like, I refuse to believe that she didn't know it. I would give her a little bit of grace at the age of 18. Maybe she... I don't know. Mm. I can see your point of view. But since then, I can't forgive it. As a memoirist, as a writer, as a as a fully grown woman, 
in an age where, you know, Black Lives Matter happened, I think there she's she's really to blame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of about sums up all of the questions and the complexities of this story, I guess. And it kind of split people, you know, between sympathy for her and sympathy for him. And I mean, I wonder if any listeners out there have any strong views or additional kind of questions or layers to add to this. I'd be super interested because it's a very complex case. So feel free to contact us through Instagram or email if you do have any comments. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Here are our three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing number one, there is a GoFundMe for Anthony Broadwater where you can help him get his finances and his life back on track. We will link it in our newsletter, so subscribe if you haven't already to get that link. Thing two, interrogate your own prejudice and your own willful blindness, always keeping in mind that we live in a world full of racist structures and take the time to really interrogate them and dismantle them if you can. And number three, if you're a content maker of any kind, also interrogate the material in terms of the capitalization of racism and the repercussions it might have in the real world. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.